This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. Heard weekdays from noon to one. Now, Fight Back with Libby Snymer on Zoomer Radio. Good afternoon and welcome. It's Tuesday and that means it's time for our crack strategy panel. And as always, there's a lot to talk about. On the federal scene, we've got political missteps on both sides of the aisle including the first big boo-boo of the conservative leadership campaign. Meanwhile, the heritage minister managed to step in it with comments about licensing news. Here in Ontario, the education strikes continue at a stepped-up pace, and there's a brouhaha over some expensive anti-union ads that some are alleging the government is behind. So we want to hear from you over all these little eruptions. The numbers to call 416-360-0740, toll-free 1-866-744-740. And now I'd like to welcome Karen Stintz, former city councillor and current CEO of Variety Village. Charles Bird, managing principal of Earnscliff Strategy Group in Toronto. And Kim Wright, principal of Wright Strategies. Hi, everybody. Welcome. Hi. Thank you, Hi. Libby. Hello. Okay, so let's start with the Peter McKay tweet. So just setting this up, his staff, or he, sent out a tweet trashing Justin Trudeau for using Liberal Party donations. I believe the amount was $869 and change for yoga, spa, and health club expenses. Now, Peter McKay was in an interview, and he was asked about this because he was saying... I would like to raise the discourse of politics. So uh, here, have a listen when they asked him about that tweet, trashing Trudeau. No, it isn't. And and, uh, that was something that happened that I, I... I'm not proud of. I, I don't. Uh, I don't have the opportunity always to vet every single thing that goes on that social media account. So we're going to do better. And in that, okay. I, I okay, think so we're done. you just went um, way off. Okay, so he answered the question. In my opinion, he answered the question well, calmly, and just as he's finishing, and the reporter was about to ask a follow-up, his staff shut the whole thing down. And the interview's over, and we saw pictures of him, you know, putting the mic down. So uh, who wants to start? <laughs> <laughs> well, I, you know, I think this is there, there's many dimensions to, to what, what's wrong with this situation. One is that um, whether or not he knew that that tweet had, was out there, um, you know, no leader is probably tweeting on their own account. I mean, I think Trump is the only one who doesn't. Um, so there is the fact that staff are tweeting on his behalf, I don't think is revolutionary, but he should probably be briefed on what's on his Twitter feed. And, you know, if he if he really didn't agree with the yoga expenses, then it should have been taken down. But also, I mean, it's politics, right? And, and part of what his opportunity was that he missed, I think, is to say, yeah, I'm doing politics differently. I'm not going to spend donor money or taxpayer money on things like my kid's education or yoga. Because that was why Andrew Scheer got in the soup as well. So it's, um, you know, politics is politics and no one's going to elect a nice guy. Like he's got to be the guy who's in control. And I think that there was just lots of elements of that interview that showed he wasn't in control, not least of which was his staff ferreting him out of there. So I well, think it's a problem he seemed for him. 
taken taken by surprise. And, and Charles Bird, I mean, I've already heard rumors that those particular staffers have been fired. Yeah, I mean, I, hats off to Peter McKay for actually um, invoking the need for civility in our political discourse. I mean, I thought it was a, a very, very good moment for him. And what made it all the stranger were his staff people um, deciding to cut him off mid-interview. And, I, I, you know, I've worked for Ralph Goodale for six years as a minister. I worked for Paul Martin, and I can uh, count the number of times I've cut them off in the midst of interviews on no hands, because it's just not something you do, except in the circumstance when you are out of time, which is like, you've got to go and you you simply have to be on the move. Um, But, you know, I think this goes to an underlying uh, facet of the conservative campaign, which is there are a lot of conservatives across the country for whom the demonstration of how much you hate Justin Trudeau is going to be one of the key considerations in terms of uh, who your choice is for leader. And it's very akin to how much Democrats hate Trump and how much Republicans hated Hillary. And it goes to the poison that's part of our political discourse these days. And it's interesting to see McKay take this tack because this is a very deliberate tack back to the center. Yeah. And, uh, you know, I, uh, the the thing that that really I noticed was that he answered the question, in my opinion, in in you know a very good, calm way. And I don't understand why, when his staff started to ferret him out of there, he wouldn't say, "Well, just a minute, I just." want to finish answering this or whatever. Yeah, there's a couple of component pieces to this. Peter McKay and his team have been doing this whole, we play hockey and the Prime Minister does yoga, Mm. which is a very, uh, you know, trying to be masculine versus more feminine, which anyone who's ever done a yoga class, male, female, cyborg, I don't care. Mm. It is hard to do yoga and maybe the staffers on the McKay team could use a couple of yoga meditation (laughs) moments. Uh, But So they've been trying to play this I'm a man's man versus Trudeau not being so manly. So that was inevitably going to blow up in their face. You cannot do these types of contrast pieces half-baked. You have to be either all in on them or all out of them. Because the moment you're kind of wishy-washy, as Peter McKay was trying to be in that, of saying, I want to increase the civility in politics, well, then you need to rethink your strategy. The second part of this is that uh, these staffers who jumped in and look, I've I, I've had to do it once, and I and it it never goes well if you're a staffer trying to jump in or try to wrap up a thing. But ultimately, they have to take their leadership from their elected official or their uh, wanting to be elected official who's trying to say, you know what, look, I'm going to keep going on this interview. They approved this reporter. They approved they were going to talk about the campaign. Inevitably, if they didn't know that this ad controversy was going to come up, maybe they should check Twitter once in a while. But there's all sorts of things that were wrong. Ultimately, this was bad leadership uh, on the entirety of the of the McKay campaign, and they're going to have to wear this. Uh, Charles, does this go away uh, if he fires those staffers? I don't and think he needs he? to fire them. I mean, it's early on in the leadership campaign. Um, you know, there's going to be a lot of growing pains as they try to assemble a, a functioning team uh, centered right across the country and with the headquarters. And, you know, who you have with the candidate, though, is a really critical consideration because it has to be the kind of people who can exercise good judgment in often high-pressured situations situation uh situations and so it's um it's something that i think they'll sort out over time but listen there's no doubt that peter mckay 
if if my conservative friends are to be believed, Peter McKay is going to run away with this thing. Mm-hmm. Um, he's got he's got some. You know, I, I, I've said I like Marilyn Gladue out of Sarnia Lampton. She's a very thoughtful person, but she's got very little by way of profile. Erin O'Toole is almost a poster child for embittered conservatism. So there may be there may be some traction he can pick up among the far right. But for the most part, this is a coronation waiting to happen. Except for if you keep stumbling like Peter McKay has done right out of the gate. Look, his 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 launch was uh, lackluster at best. His uh, I've I've seen Peter McKay give burn burner speeches. If they didn't know that this Twitter thing was going to be a fiasco, the fact that is that I, I don't even believe that they've taken down the tweets on this yet. So they can't be that apologetic about it. But he's stumbling a lot out of the gate. Yeah, I think that's the risk that he has because everyone sees him as Jesus. He's going to walk in with his styrofoam shoes and steal this camp, steal this uh, coronation, as you say. And I don't think that's going to happen necessarily. And so he's got to up his game. There's Unfortunately, being the perceived front runner means that you've got all eyes on you all the time. And he's had a couple missteps that were not in, indicative of someone who should be coronated. So I think this is a wake-up call for the whole campaign. And you were saying, Karen, as someone who knows <laughs> yeah. that you know he made he made a big deal about the fact that he was in politics and mm-hmm. then he was out of politics and now he's coming back. But not so easy, you it's say. Not, it's not that easy. You were out for a while and the rules of the game change. They change quickly. And uh, I think it's another awakening for him that they, he's got to relearn these rules pretty quickly. And it's a different world. Okay. Let us move on to the Liberals' misstep and uh, their star recruit and rookie cabinet minister, Stephen Gilbeau, was uh, talking about licensing the news media. This followed a report last week on uh, Wither Broadcasting, a very lengthy report by Janet Yale with at least 47 recommendations. And uh, he had to walk that back. It gave the Conservatives ammunition in the House of Commons, you know, uh, talking about uh, imposing licensing requirements and controlling content. So here's a couple of questions that I have, and I have to say I don't love getting into the weeds about our own industry here, but if you're in broadcasting, radio or television, you already need to get licensed, and you have to renew that license every seven years. Yeah, and I think that is may have been what led to his comment. I don't see what the big deal is, yeah. <laughs> which then it exploded on him. Um, so I, I think the devil's in the details, as you say, into the weeds of how does it affect bloggers and how does it affect upstarts and how does it affect online and, um, you know, and potentially uh, other streaming organizations. But you're right for broadcast, you know, other than the CBC, I'm not really sure it's revolutionary what they're proposing. Yeah. Um, Charles? Um Listen, there's one of two possibilities. Either the government was floating a really crazy trial balloon (laughs) or uh, a neophyte liberal minister stepped into the minefield, right? Mm -hmm. And it's not surprising. I mean, this is really, really complex policy ground. I mean, the, the commission that brought forward the recommendations, had some really, really interesting things to say. And obviously, how we, quote unquote, regulate, or more importantly, tax foreign providers like Netflix, like Amazon, um, is a big question. I mean, it's it's easy to regulate broadcasters when they're situated in Canada. It's very difficult to do so when they're situated in, you know, the Isle of Man or Uzbekistan. But I do know the Prime Minister was pretty quick to come out yesterday and say, we will not impose licensing requirements on user 
organizations, nor will we regulate news content. End of story. So, well, they uh, had this whole thing where they were going to subsidize some media, and that it made me really nervous. I, you know, don't like that idea so much. Yeah, well, I think there is a big question outstanding of the CBC. What's going to happen there? I mean, it's it's there is a question of its relevancy, how it should be funded, and how it competes with the with other private sector broadcasters. Well, okay, I'm just going to touch on this because, mm-hmm. again, you know, like we do have, uh, we, we're a broadcaster, but it's one of the things that drives private broadcasters nuts because they are substitute, mm-hmm. subsidized to the tune of $1.2 billion. And we know legacy media has trouble and the ad market is shrinking. Mm-hmm. And, and they then, take advertising revenue. Yeah, well, yeah, and they, they cannibalize advertising value. They're basically competing against private broadcasters with, our own this, money with this huge subsidy. Okay, yes. Yeah. So, so one of the recommendations is get rid of the advertising. You'd have to boost their subsidy by a bit, but then it would free up a lot of advertisers. Six hundred and seventy-five million dollars. No, yeah. they is, is they the didn't. The boost. Um, uh, I've seen other oh, sorry, numbers. That was, that's recent numbers over the lot. That's in that's in terms of yeah. Recent so they probably need about a quarter numbers. mil more a year. And uh, they made $250 million in advertising revenue. So, look, the, the reality is this is a minister who, th- uh, and, who entered the scene thinking he was this, you know, God's gift to cabinet type of, type of thing. It was a little miffy that it allegedly was a little miffy. He didn't get his portfolio of choice. He was trying to make a name for himself uh, and, and crashed and burned on this. The reality is where people thought and they heard about this type of thing uh, is that... Um, you know, if you talk about regulations and you talk about licensing, the flip side is, does that mean that the regulators can say no, that you can't have a license? And does that get to be a very politicized process and a very politicized world? Probably not. But that that is where the concern of of people when they're hearing about this, it sounds like it was a bit of payback for people whose news broadcasts weren't as favorable to the government. I, I think that a lot of that becomes conspiracy theory in the end, but it was poorly planned out conversations. There are lots of bigger things that need to be talked about, including the the future of the CBC. And uh, Charles Byrd, do you think he crashed and burned? or No, I mean, let's let's be tripped, real here. Maybe. Stephen Guibault was appointed <laughs> as Minister of Canadian Heritage, having just been elected as a first-time MP, and went on the record saying how honoured and how humbled he was. The notion that he had some sort of God complex, as Kim suggests, is ludicrous. Oh, okay, sure. Okay, okay. Because he'd be the first one to say, oh, I'm, I'm actually honored. just enjoying this. I'm honoured to be liberals. here. Oh, Look, I, I, I think he wanted desperately to be the uh, climate change guru that he had pr- professed to be and what wants to be. And that's fine. You don't always get what you want in a cabinet picking, uh, especially rookies. Uh, ask Adam Vaughn. Uh, uh, Karen, you wanted to weigh in on this before we move along? No, we can move along. <laughs> okay. So but while we move along, let me give the numbers out again. Uh, if anyone out there, uh, I don't expect you to uh, want to weigh in on this little broadcasting brouhaha, but people, I suspect people might want to say something about Peter McKay and the uh, Twitter tiff. 416-360-0740, toll-free 1-866-740-4740. And speaking of conspiracy theories, so 
<clears throat> excuse me, this weekend there were these great big uh, full-page ads uh, but from purportedly showing parents who were really mad at teachers and accusing them of using students as pawns here in the province and suddenly saying, oh, the government must be behind that. Is that the working families of Vaughn or something? Yeah. yeah. Oh. See, oh, like, who knows who any of those groups yeah. are? Well, so, see, that's delightful, actually. I think it's just delightful because the Working Families Coalition <laughs> was actually funded by unions, uh, teachers' unions, other unions, to, be, uh, to run propaganda on behalf of the Liberals. So the Conservatives are taking a page, potentially, out of the Liberal songbook by having a group uh, organize themselves and call the working family of Vaughan or whatever, or Newmarket or whatever municipality it is, and uh, basically trying to do what the Liberals had been successful doing for the last 10 or 15 years. Well, it wasn't the Liberals, it was the unions, and it wasn't pro-Liberal, it was decidedly anti-Conservative. That may have had a very real uh, positive impact wow, on Liberal that is no, but, uh, no it was, um, it was I mean, it was... It no, was no, I get. I, I, I can I mean, sort can of I see that that it's more anti-conservative than uh, no. The Working Families Coalition was decidedly pro-liberal government provincially. Yeah. But I mean, what's what's your evidence for that? I'm hearing all sorts of things that are coming without a shred of evidence. I mean, I can't think of a single time Working Families Coalition came out and said, "Boy, that Premier Wynne, she's just wonderful," or Premier McGuinty, he can do no wrong. It's just I mean, come well, on. it's because the NDP isn't really a player in provincial politics. They only have to be anti-conservative to be pro-liberal. Uh, last I checked, we were the official opposition of the. The Liberals didn't have a caucus, but let's uh, take that for aside for a second. Look, the the question, it, it was interesting when Minister Lecce, and who is very good at his talking points, that man cannot get off a talking point if, he, if it was him versus his life. He was very clear when asked the question, is this, is this you guys, is this your, your team? His response was, no one from my office or the Ministry of Education were part of this. That doesn't quite answer the question, Minister Lecce. It does open up other questions as to, all right, was it PC Cox Services? Was it Premier's office? Was it your buddy down the street? I don't know what it was. I think people need to get to the answer. This is also a Minister of Education who, in their propaganda, has come up with uh, classrooms from Spain and uh, parents who are from Poland and all sorts of different things as a, as, as a way to take uh, to look like they're doing these things, but in fact not. If they want to get back to the table and negotiated settlements are always I thought always they the are best. back at the table. They're, well, I think it broke down. It broke down Talks again. Broke down again, yeah. And yeah. so, uh, you know, other news outlets have said to uh, Harvey Bischoff from OSSTF and others, would you appear on the same show as Minister Lecce? And his response remains, anytime, anyplace. Uh, the Premier says the education deal is being stymied by the unions. Uh, the unions have said, fine, take it directly to our members. You have that right within the collective agreement. If you think this great, this deal is so phenomenal, uh, go directly to our members. They refuse. The government knows that this is not a good deal. They're, they need to get back to this table, and they need to actually start bargaining in good faith and not through sound bites. Oh, what about the escalation? I mean... Uh, this week, I think in Peel, there are two strike days and a PD day. Yeah, uh, that can't be sitting well with parents. No, it can't be. And I think that the um, and, and again, I think this is where we have the tipping point as to whether the pressure will fully fall on the government or the pressure will fall on the teachers' union, because up until now it's been mildly irritating, but now we're getting into a point where it's impacting. Um, it's impacting report cards. It's impacting extracurricular. It's impacting uh, family schedules. It's, it, it has the ripple effect is now I think more acutely being felt. And so I, I, I think that this is going to come to a point in the next two or three weeks where it will be one way or another solved. 
Okay, I'm, I'm, I'm hesitating or? to come to you, Charles, because I know there are you're, how many, how many teachers yeah, well, in your family? Well, there's four brothers-in-law and two sisters-in-law, and um, yeah, and uh, a lot of kids in school. Um, so, one of the immutable facts of these kinds of situations is that if it drags on long enough and becomes problematic enough or irritating enough for parents, it's the government that wears it, and irregardless of whether it's a liberal government, an NDP government, or a conservative government. It being a conservative government now obviously adds a whole other dimension to the politics of the situation. But the longer this goes on, the worse it is for the Ford government. And, and at what point do they legislate back to work, and do they? Because... Uh, if they legislate back to work, then an arbitrator comes in, and I don't know if an arbitrator will stick to that 1%. Well, that's it, and I think legislating back to work is dangerous because then you're still getting, um, you're still not getting report cards because under their current collective bargaining agreement, they only have to do the bare minimum. So there's lots of things that will still be lost. Um, that, granted, the kids will be back in the classroom, but um, I think legislating back to work at this stage, I think, would be a big mistake for the government. And, and as Karen, you well know, as being former chair of the Toronto Transit Commission, making someone an essential service designation doesn't actually lead to better contracts or better for the taxpayers. In fact, it usually ends up with a premium to it. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, yeah. I know. My kids are 11 and 6, and they want this thing to go on for as long as possible, just to put that out on the record. Okay, yes. Uh, Okay, well, they might be getting their wish. Uh, And we now see that there is, uh, the city's asked for a new, no board report Mm -hmm. for for their workers. What's going to happen with that? Yeah, I, I, the um, the Ford government actually was uh, really successful in negotiating contracts that were advantageous to the city, and um, so we'll see if we can, you know, continue that because they they really they were able to to contain wages, they were able to get a lot of concessions, and so my 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 feeling is that the union has is will argue that they've done their part, and now it's time for um, a little bit of uh, understanding of the sacrifices they may have made in the past. Mm-hmm. And how will that go over? Not very well, particularly in light of the fact that Tories already added onto the tax bill this capital yeah. um, surcharge that's going to be paying for a whole bunch of sundry things, that there's little room left to, uh, within the city budget to be paying out for large wage increases. Uh-huh. Not to mention that you know, the police already are over a billion dollars. Right. So, uh, but Charles, won't, won't the city workers argue that everybody else is getting it? Why not them? Listen, ta- talking after Karen Stintz is like talking about basketball after Wilt Chamberlain, right? I'm not nearly as well versed in these issues <laughs> as, uh, as she is. Um, it's a dynamic. It fits in with a lot of other, you know, interesting pieces such as the increase in property taxes. And, you know, John Tory has been a fairly successful mayor, especially given recent comparisons. And, um, you know, he has decided that he is going to use up some of his political capital. I think it's it's unclear whether he's going to run for a third term. Uh, he's likely positioned to do so. But, um, you know, he's he's putting it out there. You know, ultimately, as as the saying goes, "Show me your budget, and I'll show you your values." So the you know the mayor has done a lot of great things. He's made a lot of great speeches, but when you start to look at the city of Toronto's budget uh, funds that were supposed from the guns and gangs situation that were supposed to go into youth programming uh, just aren't there. Uh, so when we start to hear more and more talk about what does the city need to do, the capital fund uh, that Karen talked about is supposed to go into housing. It's supposed to go 
into transit. It's supposed to go into roads, things people see and really want investments in. We'll see if that actually uh, ever gets shovels in the ground. Uh, That becomes the question mark. It's great to announce things, uh, but ultimately people's lives need to be improved and you know that that's really where the rubber hits the road whether or not uh you know the the recreation workers the garbage uh, workers all of the different city workers uh can can put that proper narrative out there. One of the really interesting things from a labor relations standpoint that uh, the Rob Ford government did uh, versus David Miller is that he he got these uh, these contracts back into the winter months. So if the garbage workers go on strike in the middle of February, you'd notice it a lot less than if it's the middle of July. I was going to ask about mm-hmm. that, and I heard there's some kind of contingency plan if there is a garbage strike. Uh, likely, there will be. And, um, and also because half of it is um, contracted out now. So there's a larger section of the city that actually gets its garbage collected and um, and the reality is um, we, you know we, we had set up those um, dumping stations in the uh, city arenas I remember them well I and, remember covering them every yeah, day for that you know story. and it was a decision that David Miller made not to clear out those dumping stations but the reality is we could have gone in and cleared them out like there's no reason that we needed to have piles of festering garbage um, in our arenas so there I imagine there is a contingency plan and it will um, it, particularly garbage is the most visible um, sign of a labor disruption, and it will be dealt with. I'm imagining in a much different way than it was I in mean, the past. I mean, this is something that could really, I think, if undo mayor Mayor Tory's mm-hmm. garbage. It 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 has done others undone <laughs> others before. It it's certainly it's stinky. It's certainly in large part did David Miller in the mm-hmm. the relationship between he and and the unions were never the same, um, and and it changes your dynamics of. But ultimately, as I said about the teacher strike. You know, they need to have a bit of fire. Both sides need to have a bit of fire under them to actually get to a place of a deal because uh, that becomes the best settlement and ultimately helpful for taxpayers as well as uh, people who are using services. Okay, we are almost out of time. Uh, what would you like to leave us with, Charles? Iowa. <laughs> we didn't Iowa. talk about Iowa. Boot <laughs> edge edge. That's Boot right. edge edge. Iowa. Just, I've never seen the likes of it. It's just amazing. And and frankly, it's it, Bernie Sanders released internal numbers that they that his campaign had that showed um, Sanders in first, Buttigieg in second, Sanders uh, rather um, Elizabeth Warren in third, and Biden in fourth. Um, what's really interesting is that Sanders and Warren, the perceived sort of progressive left wing candidates, got just. 40% of the vote in Iowa. And Iowa is a very peculiar place, but this has incredible ramifications going forward if these numbers turn out to be what actually is made public. Um, it also sets the table very nicely for Michael Bloomberg if Joe Biden is not able to finish in the top three in New Hampshire. At the moment, polling suggests he'll finish second, but um, I think it, it may actually turn out to be a major blow for the likes of Bernie Sanders and um, and Buttigieg simply because, I mean, when you win Iowa, it's worth $100 million in earned media, and that was taken away from them last night. Yep. Just amazing. Yeah. yeah, yeah. I mean, I think that... Um, and it, 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 it's bizarre because the polling, people were asked, do you want to vote for a candidate that aligns with your ideals or someone who can beat Trump? And then they pick Sanders. And then they pick Sanders, yeah. So I think, honestly, it's, you know, 
Trump's sitting back looking at four more years. He's well, going to yeah, get re- re- easily reelected. It actually doesn't matter. The sideshow that the Democrats are carrying on right now, it, it almost doesn't matter. Trump well, will get reelected. Well, that is the conventional wisdom. Yeah. Uh, I, look, I've been a fan of Pete Buttigieg uh, from the very beginning. His launch is, in my 30 years in politics, the best I've ever seen in terms of uh, being able to articulate the why he's running for president. Uh, and every day his campaign shows me that uh, they are uh, far and away where everyone else thought they were going to be and uh, and have and have a path uh so you know on 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 to new hampshire as they have and and he did an interesting thing similar to obama went on last night uh and talked about how this is this shifts the conversation but a judge was out of a lot of people's conversations he's now back in and i think you're going to see that uh, that continuing that momentum shifting okay well it is at the moment, just a sideshow for us. So that's all the time we have for this week. Thank you so much, Charles Bird, Karen Stintz, and Kim Wright. Thank, Thank you. you. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. Heard weekdays from noon to one. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. Heard weekdays from noon to one. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. Heard weekdays from noon to one. This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show.